Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice when hey, everybody, this is Shane Claiborne. Thanks so much for joining me for the show today. I'm trying to record a show every week, and I've been doing a series around uh, the themes in my new book, Rethinking Life, and we'll get into that. But uh, I know this week many of us are tuning in with a really heavy heart about what is happening in Israel and Palestine. Um, almost every single day we see the atrocities of the loss of life. Um, just yesterday, the hospital uh, that was bombed and, and hundreds of lives lost in Gaza. And it is such an important time to uh, insist on the sacredness of every human life. And that's what we're, we're talking about right now on this show. And um, every single person is made in the image of God. Every single Palestinian is made in the image of God. Their life is sacred. Every single Israeli life is sacred, made in the image of God. And if you have a hard time being able to grieve the loss of life on one side of this issue, then let's do a little heart check. And let's ask God to give us more compassion because God, God's heart is breaking every time one of God's children's lives is crushed. And um, there's a whole backdrop of pain and anti-Semitism that has led to some of the policies that we've seen the, in the in the nation of Israel. I think it's important to di differentiate between the state of Israel and the Israeli people, just as it's important to differentiate between uh, Hamas and the Palestinian people or the people of Gaza. We are more than the evils of our government, and no people should be collectively punished because of the wrongs of those who are governing them. Uh, and and so so right now, I mean, when you think of the history of anti-Semitism, um, all of those millions of lives that were crushed, you can see that there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of pain. And there's also decades and decades and decades now of oppressive policies that have crushed Palestinian people um, that has erupted in its own form of violence. And none of that justifies the violence, but it simply helps explain it. As my friend Richard Rohr says, that when our pain does not get transformed, it gets transmitted, that it erupts and in, in forms of violence, either through policy violence or through actual violence. And at the end of the day, when a child's life is crushed, it breaks God's heart. And when you're holding your baby girl that has been killed 
it doesn't matter who did it. It just feels terrible. It is terrorism to kill children, and it's being done um, almost daily right now. So we grieve that, and and we work for the free freeing of the hostages, for the humanitarian aid, for a, a corridor of of space where people can get resources in and refugees can come out. And let's all commit ourselves to working to de-escalate the violence, even the violent rhetoric and the hate crimes that are happening almost daily in our world to say we can advocate for compassion. And compassion is not a limited resource. And we can also fight for justice and even for the freedom and liberation of the Palestinian people and the autonomy and the uh, safety of Israel. Uh, so as we get into the conversation today, I want to know, you know, recognize that that's on our hearts, but it's also exactly why we're talking about what it means to actually be pro-life, to be a champion for life. To uh, you know, and I, I kind of you know, all, all through the book, I, I mentioned that I grew up saying that I was pro-life, but I only really thought about one issue: abortion. And I would be more accurate if I said I was, uh, you know, growing up that if I said I was pro-birth or anti-abortion, because on almost every other issue of life and death, Christians have not been the best champions. I mean, that's the irony. In America, uh, you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war, and still say you're pro-life <laughs> as long as you got abortion, right? So this is what I want to talk about. You know, this, this book, Rethinking Life, is not a book about abortion. Um, it's a book about life. But I also knew that we had to talk about abortion, um, even though it's the 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 issue that often eclipses so many other issues. It's still an important issue to think about. And, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue, too. As you look at the issue of abortion, we don't all agree, even on where life begins, right? So there's folks that think that life begins at conception. Other folks that think that life begins at heartbeat. Um, you know, still others that believe that life begins at quickening when the baby moves in the womb. Viability is, a, you know, another place where people think life begins when the fetus can live outside of the womb. Um, there are people who believe that life begins at first breath. When the child first takes it takes its first breath, um, I did a poll with hundreds of people that responded, and we were divided on this. But what's interesting is almost half of folks believe that life began at conception. At least the the potential, the possibility for life begins at conception, and then you know heartbeat, viability, birth. It was kind of spread out. But here's another interesting thing that I polled. I asked people, you know, their opinion on abortion. And there were folks that believed um, that abortion should be completely illegal, even even in the cases of incest or rape, totally illegal. That was a small group. There's another small group that believed that abortion should be totally legal, even up to the point of birth, like even in the later parts of, of pregnancy when there's, you know, uh, the, the, there should be no restrictions on abortion. And and that was a small group. But here's what's interesting. Almost 70% of hundreds and hundreds of people that responded to this poll said that abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. Legal, safe, and rare. Um, 
that used to be the language that resonated with many people is that um, uh, we, we should mer- work to make abortion rarer and rarer. Um, but there's cases where people are going to have one, even if you disagree with them, should it actually be a crime? You know, um, these these are big questions, right? They're questions we don't all agree on. Um, but one of the other reasons that this is a complicated issue is because Jesus didn't mention it, even though it existed. You know, Jesus doesn't mention abortion. Scripture um, doesn't directly speak to abortion. There's one or two verses that can, you know, be interpreted to have implications on abortion. Um, and yet abortion existed when scripture was written. And we we just don't have a whole lot of really clear texts. And and so you you start to go, how did this become such a defining issue? And that that's what I want to talk about. Um but first, I want to start with some facts, because, you know, as the old saying goes, uh, we're entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. And here are just a few of the things for us to think about. First of all, one in every four women in the United States, one in four has had an abortion by the time they're 45 years old. One in four. That's a lot. So this affects people in our lives, people in our families, in our congregations. And we shouldn't talk about it as an abstract issue without um, compassion and love. And, um, and, and, and this is the other thing that's a fact. The number one reason for having an abortion is financial viability. Finances. Feeling like someone doesn't know how they can afford to have a child or another child. And so that that's so important, right? That that um, if we want to reduce the number of abortions, we should advocate for things that might lift the burden of finances on the family that, that's having a child or having another child. And yet what, what we see over and over and over is the people who say that they are pro-life are often anti the policies that would make life more feasible, that uh, things like health care and uh, affordable child care, being able to have a living wage, right? Parental leave, these things, like we should be the advocates of those kind of things that might make it more possible. So, so there's these contradictions, right? The other thing that's important is that abortions have been dropping year after year over the past 50 years since Roe versus Wade under Republican and Democratic presidents. Now we can still do a whole lot of work to try to, you know, reduce that number more. But um, I want to say that this is a complicated issue. Now, What's interesting is you really look at our history in the United States, at how this became the defining issue of what it means to be pro-life. It was, um, it might not be what you what you think, and and I'm building on the work of some great scholars like my friend Randall Balmer, who uh, has studied. Uh, the, the centrality of abortion and the birth of the religious right. And he's written a great book called Bad Faith, where he talks about just that. But um, Christians didn't agree on this. In fact, even fundamentalist conservative Christians didn't um, have a unilateral opinion on abortion. Um, just to give you an example of that, um, Jerry Falwell uh, one of the founders of the religious right didn't preach his first anti-abortion sermon until more than five years after Roe versus Wade um, in February 
1978. Um, he didn't, uh, uh, this wasn't a central passion of his. Um, check this out. The Southern Baptist Convention passed unilaterally in 1971, before before Roe versus Wade, passed a resolution encouraging Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, and clear evidence of um, fetal deformity. And they carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of the damage of emotional, mental, and physical health. So they were leaving room for abortion. Southern Baptists did that in 1971. Not only that, but they reaffirmed that position in 1974, allowing for abortion again in 1976. So check this out. One of the most famous conservative fundamentalist voices was W.A. Criswell. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas where Robert Jeffress is now a very um, controversial, you know, figure, conservative pastor in, in America. But Chriswell, when he was pastor, he said this, I've always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. So that's interesting, right? Like our most conservative voices, one of the other folks I quote is, uh, Dr. James Dobson, right, founder of Focus on the Family, one of the um, the, the preeminent leaders of the, the the religious right. He said, and he was writing in a foreword to a book called "Sex Is a Parent Affair." He wrote uh, the the foreword to this book, and this is uh, 1973, the same year as Roe versus Wade. This book came out, and this is what it says. There are sharp differences among Christians with regard to abortion. Some consider it murder. Others say the operation might be an act of mercy. Some believe that the soul enters the fetus at conception. Others feel the zygote is just a cell that may become a potential human being, but is not yet one at the moment. Now, it goes on. But here's the most conservative voices in our country that are saying there's room for differences of opinion on this, like like we don't all agree on it. So how did this become the the real litmus test in, in defining issue of pro-life? So this is what also was happening at the same time, is you had the civil rights movement, right? So in the 1960s, we've got uh, Dr. King and the civil rights movement. You've got the... Um, uh, civil Rights Act that uh, that, that passed um, and Brown versus Board of Education. So the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So we have this whole uh, society moving so towards racial equality and desegregation. Um, and then in 1971, there was a Supreme Court case. It's not very well known, but it's Green versus Connolly. And it was a Supreme Court ruling that a private school that practiced racial discrimination was ineligible for tax-exempt status. So here's our post-civil rights Supreme Court that is ruling that a, a school that continues to discriminate will lose its tax-exempt status. Now, this began to shake up the Christian world because you still had uh, Christian schools, Christian colleges that were racially segregated. Bob Jones University was one of those. 
and it became really the um, archetype. Now it's kind of the the eye of the storm for for this struggle. So Bob Bob Jones University was a fundamentalist school named after its founder, um, who argued uh, Bob Jones argued that racial segregation was mandated by the Bible, and. Um, I'm not going to get into all that, but you can, I mean, it just, this entire theology of segregation. Now the IRS began to threaten Bob Jones saying, you're going to lose your tax exempt status if you're an all white school. And so they um, admitted one African-American um, <laughs> who was a uh, uh, bless him. It was a man that worked on, in the campus radio station. And he became a part-time student. He, he dropped out a month later, but uh, this is 1975 to play, you know, to kind of, fend off the IRS. And so the school then began to admit African-Americans who were married. You had to be a married African-American, right, to get into the school because they didn't want any racial mixing, no interracial dating. Now, keep in mind, this is the, the, Bob Jones did not change its interracial dating policy, um, segregated dating policy. They didn't change it until 2000, to the year 2000, right? I tell the story of my friend Dave Gibbons, who uh, he and his wife Becca went there, and um, they're in an interracial mar marriage. But um, it was, uh, you know, against school policy to date interracially, and so he talks about what that was like. But you know, these schools, as they continued to segregate, um, they were threatened with the loss of their tax exempt status, and in fact, that happened. That you know, after. Uh, Brown versus board, you couldn't discriminate um, based on race. And so it became an argument of religious freedom. And it lasts even up to this day, right? That we see people arguing uh, religious freedom, um, the, the, the right to discriminate. So the cause of religious liberty initially was a posture around the right to discriminate. And in, in fact, Bob Jones did lose its tax exempt status and had to fight for its right to discriminate. And in, um, in 1983, it wasn't until 1983 that they finally lost the case um, defending their right to discriminate. And when they did, they flew the American flag at half mast. They flew the flag at half mast. So this, um, you start to go, well, what does have, any of this have to do with abortion? Christians could not find anything that um, was pulling them together until you see this civil rights struggle. And then it's in the wake of the civil rights movement that this becomes, um, I mean, you're not going to argue on the, on uh, for your right to discriminate uh, as much as you're arguing for religious freedom, but you also see abortion become the defining issue that they could rally around. I mean, they couldn't agree on nuclear weapons. They couldn't agree um, on equal rights for, you know, women. There just, there wasn't anything. And, and honestly, abortion was seen more as a Catholic issue than an evangelical or fundamentalist conservative Christian issue. And, um, as you, you you look deeply into this, you see how problematic it is that our singular focus on abortion was more a response to the civil rights movement than it actually was to scripture, biblical Christianity, or certainly to Jesus. This was always seen as a much more complicated issue 
for Christians and even the most conservative Christians in our country could not agree. And they all left room that Christians are going to disagree on the issue of abortion. I mean, how can we have such a strong opinion on something that scripture is so abstract about? Uh, And yet it began to become a culture war, right? And so the, the religious right, the forerunner of the conservative Christianity of today was birthed in service, not of biblical values, but of racial segregation, a defense of white, superiority. Or as my friend Lisa Sharon Harper says, the contemporary pro-life movement was gestated in the womb of segregation. It's not to say that abortion doesn't matter, but it's to say this is a complicated issue that Christians have never fully agreed on, and maybe we can create a better conversation around abortion, where we could say abortion um Let's work. Let's find ways that we can make abortion rare and rare. But this should not be the only pro-life issue. I mean, the fact is that when you poll Christians, it's still white evangelical Christians that are often the only segment of our population that has abortion as their number one voting issue, uh, that and sexuality. Um so many other issues are so much clearer. I mean, there's 2,000 scriptures that talk about justice for the poor, that, that talk about welcoming immigrants. And the many, so many of these issues shouldn't be about left and right, but they're about right and wrong. They're, we see a clear biblical mandate for showing hospitality to immigrants and refugees and foreigners, to, to show love for the poor, to advocate for the marginalized. And there's 2,000 verses about that. There's seven verses about uh, uh, same-sex relations. And there's one verse or two verses about that uh, about life before birth, this idea, you know, of abortion. Now, the early Christians did speak to it, but they, um, they, when they talked about the evil of abortion, and they spoke unilaterally against abortion, the early Christians did. But it wasn't um, exactly the way that we think of it. They also had what they called exposure, which was actually a child that's already born that their life is ended by leaving them, exposing them to the elements, leaving them in the desert or the wilderness to die. So they, I mean, it's it's really different from how we think about abortion today. And yet it is important that they spoke about it. And I think it's important that we can care about it, right? I, I care deeply about abortion, but it's not the only issue I care about. And when you think about what it means to be pro-life, we need compassion. We need better conversations um, on abortion. I mean, a lot of folks think about late-term abortions. And yet, I remember one of the panels that we had, Lisa Sharon Harper and I have held two town halls on abortion. And one of the women that shared her story was a woman who late in abortion, she had uh, late in her pregnancy, she had twins. One of them died. And the life of the other twin who was still alive was threatened um, and her own life was in jeopardy. And so she had this heart wrenching decision um, of what she needed to do in order to possibly save her own life for the life of her other unborn child after one of them had died. Or I think of um, my friend, Patrick O'Neill, who I interview in the book and his daughter, beautiful daughter names, Mary Evelyn has down syndrome. 
And uh, he talks about what a gift she is to the world and how the world needs more kids and more people with Down syndrome. Because the fact is that when we do prenatal testing for Down syndrome, um, abortion spike. And the studies are really alarming. In places like Denmark, um, 95% of parents chose to have an abortion after receiving the news that their, um, their unborn child had Down syndrome. So I think of Heidi Crowder, who's uh, an activist in the UK with Down syndrome, and she speaks so passionately about this. She says, I find it deeply offensive that um, abortions were still uh, um, allowed up to the full term of pregnancy if the child had Down syndrome. And she says, we got to see the person behind the extra chromosome, see them in all of their inner beauty. So to think about you know, cases of Down syndrome. I think in Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa took in kids with special needs. She took in kids that were uh, abandoned in train stations. She took in 14-year-old moms who didn't know how they were going to parent a child. And that's why she became known as mother. So I, I often think like, it's got to be more than bumper stickers and t-shirts. Like that's that's cheap activism. Like we we actually need to ask the question, what does love require of us? And that's the question I keep asking over and over in the book. It's it's a question that, you know, as we think about one in four women having abortion, as we think about those in our lives who may not know how they're going to afford to have a child or a new child in their life, what can we do to advocate for life? Uh, so let's have a better conversation on abortion, but let's also not allow abortion to be the only issue that we care about. Let's not let any issue be the only issue that we care about. The fact is right now in the United States, the number one cause of death of American children is gun violence. And Christians have often been the biggest champion of guns and gun rights to the point that we're, we created a form of idolatry where we're losing our kids and we're choosing guns over kids and we can do better. So let's think about what it means in Gaza, what it means with militarism and in the war with, with Israel right now. What does it mean to champion life without exception to say every human being is made in the image of God? So let's not just be pro-birth, y'all. Let's be pro-life from womb to womb to tomb, from the womb to the tomb. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.